You're listening to a sermon by Hope Bible Church Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at hopeniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. If it were possible for us to travel in time 100 years into the future and then come back to right now, how would that journey affect the way you live the rest of your life? How do you think? How would it shape your priorities? How would it impact your outlook on what is and what isn't important? Uh, how, might, how might your life change as a result of going 100 years forward and then coming back to now. Of course, 100 years from now, we will have passed from this life into the next. We will have gone from now into eternity. And without making any grim prognostications here this morning, my sense of the matter is that we won't have to wait anywhere near that long, most of us. The reality is is that eternity is coming, and when we look ahead into the future... I wonder, when that day comes, what will we wish that we had done now? For the followers of Jesus Christ, I think the answer is very simple. We will wish that we had done what Jesus calls us to do. That's what we'll wish we'd done, and to whatever extent we've done what Jesus called us to do, for that we'll be thankful. And we'll be grateful. We'll be glad that we did. The challenge that we have, though, is that Many of us feel it today. We're pulled in so many different directions all at the same time. Some of you just feel stretched right out with life's demands. I mean, you've got, you got bills that you've got to pay. You've got parents to care for. You've got children to raise. You've got issues to manage. You've got bosses to answer to. For some of us this morning, when it comes to focusing, we feel like we're circus jugglers. And you can hear the soundtrack of your mind today as, as you try to juggle. But it's not sponge balls that you're juggling. It's like flaming torches and, and buzzing chainsaws as you try to meet life's demands through the many different things that confront us. And the truth is, is that while we find ourselves pulled in different directions, we acknowledge they're not all bad things. In fact, many of them, perhaps even most of those things are good things, things that is good for us to attend to. But the problem we encounter is that oh so often the good things keep us from doing the best things, the most important things. So what is it that's best? What is it that's most important? What's what's our main mission in the world? What's our primary purpose? What, what is it that we'll be glad we've done 100 years from now? I would suggest to you that there is one person, there's one person who can best help us understand that, who knows the way, and that's Jesus. I mean, if we're going to ask anybody this question, who better to hear from today than Jesus? And to me, I think that's one of the great treasures of our text today, is it's the words of Jesus. And it's the last words of Jesus that he spoke face to face with his disciples before he ascended into heaven. And what those disciples, what those first disciples heard that day is what I think you and I need to hear when we think about our mission, when we think about our purpose. Because Jesus, in our text today, we will hear Jesus telling us what it is 
that he wants us to do, what he calls us to be, and what he commands that we do, personally and corporately as a church. And that passage, we'll find those words of Jesus in the book of Acts chapter 1. We turn there with me in the Bible to Acts chapter 1. We're going to focus today on verses 6, 7, and 8. Acts chapter 1, verses 6, 7, and 8. I'll read a little further beyond uh, verse 8 just to fill out the account, the narrative. But as you're turning there, we are continuing in our story, our story, in our sermon series uh, called Building Up. Standing Strong, the five pillars of Hope Niagara. These, these pillars are practices that we believe from God's word that we are to prioritize uh, as a local church. We've looked at three pillars already. The first three, number one was unapologetic preaching, and then unashamed adoration, that call to worship, the centrality of worship in our life personally and corporately. Then a week ago, unceasing prayer. And now today, we are on the subject, the fourth pillar of our church that we call unafraid witness. Unafraid witness. Sharing the good news of Jesus with boldness. With boldness. And when we say boldness, we don't mean rudeness. We mean with courage and with the kind of clarity that comes through faith and courage that comes from the Lord. So what we've got here in Acts chapter 1 is Jesus really calling us to that. It's, as I mentioned a moment ago, it's this final face-to-face meeting between Christ and his first disciples. Just over a month earlier, Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried. And then on the third day, what happened? What happened on the third day? He arose from the dead. That's right. Three people knew that. He arose from the dead. That's right. So Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. It's a good place for an amen, too. He is risen indeed. Let's take another run at that. Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. indeed. That's right. Not even Easter, and we're celebrating. We celebrate that every week. Over the course of the next six weeks from the resurrection, Jesus appeared in many different occasions and many different times to his first disciples. Sometimes to just a few of them, some to a vast crowd of them. But over the course of six weeks, he accumulatively had appeared to hundreds of his first disciples. They heard him speak. They talked with him. They touched him. They ate with him. They even ate food prepared by him. His resurrection was not just a philosophical, resurrected in our minds kind of a resurrection. It was a physical, bodily resurrection. And here in our passage, It's the last time before he ascended into heaven that he spoke with his disciples face to face. And what he had to tell them is vital for you and I to hear too. Acts chapter 1 verse 6 says this. So when they came together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, they're, they're wondering, they're having a sense, there's something really momentous going on here. Is, is this the end when God's eternal kingdom will be ushered in? Verse 7, he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So in other words, knowing the timing of God's plans, his end time design is not for you, but what is for you is this, verse 8. But you will receive power When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up 
and a cloud took him out of the sight. Wonder what that looked like. Can you just imagine what that would have looked like? That cloud, if, you, if you've read the Old Testament, probably rings a bell. You think about in the Old Testament when God appeared to the nation of Israel and his glory appeared before them sometimes in a cloud. And here we have that same kind of concept here. This cloud comes and Jesus disappears from their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, verse 10, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, angels, and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Three key questions this morning and three answers. Three key questions and answers that I believe clarify our calling. First, we'll see what it is that Jesus has called us to do. And then, how he is, wants us to do it. How does he expect that we will do this? And then thirdly, where is this to happen? So what, how, and where? Number one, what does Jesus call us to do? Like, what is it we are to occupy ourselves with? With all the different directions we're pulled in and all the different responsibilities that are on our shoulders, all the challenges that confront us today. In through all of this, what is to be first? and foremost in our activity. Well, Jesus says here in verse eight, very specifically what he calls us to do. Verse eight, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. What does Jesus call us to do? He calls us to be his witnesses. That's who we are and that's what we're called to do. This is our mission. This is our mandate to be witnesses for Jesus. Now, what's a witness? You know what a witness is, right? It's somebody who's seen something, they've encountered something, and as a witness, they testify to what they heard and what they saw. So maybe you bore witness to an accident, and you report to the police officer investigating what it is that saw. You know, this car was coming this way, and then this car was coming this way, and this one didn't stop, and, and then there's this big collision. And, and it's, you're telling them, here's, here's what happened. And the reason that you're testifying is because you did see something. You are privy to something. You know that something happened. And this is exactly, this is the concept that we have here. As witnesses, the disciples of Jesus here in this text are called to bear witness to the works of Jesus, to the person and works of Jesus, especially his death and resurrection. We can see a similar kind of a teaching and exhortation from the Lord in Luke chapter 24, verse 47 and 48. It says, thus it is written, Jesus speaking, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses to these things. Those first disciples had firsthand eyewitness knowledge of Christ and his work on the cross and his resurrection. And they became for us reliable witnesses. I mean, we know the truth of the gospel today. We, we know the fact of the resurrection. We know the significance of Christ and his saving work because of those first witnesses. And we see some of that witnessing even just as we read the gospels. We've got eyewitness accounts of Jesus, what he said, what he did, why he matters. So now knowing these things and having seen these things, Jesus here commands his disciples to bear witness. And he also commands here us to bear witness too. They say, no, hang on a second, Ross, hang on a second. I wasn't there. I mean, I haven't, 
I mean, they physically saw the physically resurrected Jesus, but I, I, I wasn't there. I haven't seen the resurrected Jesus. How is it that I'm a witness? Well, let me ask you this. Are you persuaded in your heart the truth of the gospel and the hope of the cross? Are you, do you know the forgiveness of sins? Do you have a relationship with the living God? Have you come to see with the eyes of your heart the preciousness of Jesus, the offer of forgiveness of sin, the life that's had in him? Have you come to know the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? You see, you and I are witnesses of these things. Not that we have seen Jesus with our eyes physically yet, but we've seen him with the eyes of our heart. And we've come to know these things. We've come to a knowledge, a, a faith, certainty, hopeful knowledge of these things, hope-filled knowledge of these things, that they are true. And thus we're called to testify to them. We're called to bear witness to the truth of Jesus. We are witnesses of the truth of the good news. And we're to testify we're to bear witness to what we know and what we've seen with the eyes of our hearts, what we become persuaded of because of the work of the Spirit according to the Word. You see, that's the application here for you and me when he speaks to those first disciples. It's the same thing now for us as disciples. When the, Jesus commanded the disciples to, to, that when they were to teach the, the, the Word, they were to teach uh, them to do everything that Christ had commanded them to do including bearing witness, and that applies to you and to me. What does Jesus want us to do? We're called to be witnesses for him, to testify, to tell about who he is and what he's done. Actually, I should back up a step. Even before you bear witness, there's something else you must do that Christ calls us to do, and that is to repent and believe. I read that just a moment ago, Luke 24 and 47. Jesus said that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed. Before you can testify to the truth of Jesus, you must know the truth of Jesus in your life. And that begins with repentance, with acknowledging that there is a sin problem and the sin problem is right here in me. That's not to say that you haven't had things stacked against you, some of you are in your life. But ultimately, the Bible teaches us that the biggest problem with me is me and my own sinfulness, my own fallenness. And what I got to do in repenting is stop going my own way without Jesus and turn to him. Acknowledge that my sin is the problem. Acknowledge that I am the problem and turn to trust in Christ. And when I turn to trust in him, I not only repent, I also believe. I believe on him and what he's done for me, that he died to pay for my sin and he alone is able to remove my sin from me and bring me to God. The first thing I got to do is to repent and believe and be forgiven, to come to know this Jesus. And you can do that too by trusting in him, by, by, by even speaking to him right where you are right now and say, Lord, I need you to do that for me. I want you to do that for me today. And I would, I'd love nothing more than to talk with you more about that if you'd like after the service. You just, I'll be right down here. You just come find me. I'd be glad to talk with you about that. But once you come to know the forgiveness of sins, and lots of you have, right? You've come to know the forgiveness of sins. You've come to know this Jesus. Well, now the call on you is to bear witness, to tell others, to make known the good news. Let me ask you this. Seriously. Is this your ambition? 
Like, is this what you want to do? I don't mean always feel like it, but I mean a deep, going, growing desire to make Jesus known. For others to come to know the joy that you have found in him. Is it your desire? Is it your passion? Is it your prayer? Is it a matter of prayer for you? Do you, do you and I, do we see this as our central purpose? In, in, what ways, in what ways are you being faithful now in, this, in answering this call? In what ways do you need to be more faithful? These are probing questions because we ought to be thinking about this. The call to be witnesses makes us think about my own level of faithfulness in responding to that call. My home and my neighborhood, my family and my workplace in other places. I wrote down in my notes here five barriers, five barriers to being a witness. Five. There's probably more. These are five that I put down, and I'll just tell you right up front, I resonate in certain ways with all of these, okay? So this is me preaching to me and you listening in. Number one, five barriers to being a witness. Number one, busyness. Busy, not business, busyness. We, we get busy with a lot of things. You know, you ask somebody how they're doing, and you won't be surprised if they say, busy. So we feel that way. There's so many demands. We've got to go different places. And again, like I said a few minutes ago, it's not even all bad. It's not sinful to be engaged in many of these things. It's just a reality of life that sometimes we find, we realize when we stand back, so many things are taking me away from the most important thing, this thing that I'm called to do in serving the Lord Busyness. We never get to sometimes of the best things because there's a constant battle of priorities. And sometimes those good things supplant the most important things. Busyness. Number two, apathy. Apathy. Now here's a sensitive one, but let's just, let's just lay it on the table. If we're honest, some of us are too often way too okay with the fact that there's people around us, even in our lives, who don't know Jesus. apathy. It's not that I don't care. It's just that I don't care more. And because I don't care more, it's not the burning passion it should be. Busyness, apathy. Three, prayerlessness. Prayerlessness. You're like, well, pastor, you're really beating us with the stick today. No, no. Just laying it on the table. This is just the reality is that we sometimes forget that prayer is what precedes fruitfulness. Just about every great move of God in history has been preceded by prayer, including in people's individual lives, busyness, apathy, prayerlessness. Am I praying for the lost? You got people on your Holy Spirit hit list today? that you're praying for a person? Prayerlessness. Number four, I put down is fear. Fear. And there's more than one kind of fear. Sometimes it's the fear of how this is going to go. Like, this ain't going to go over well. Uh, They'll get really mad at me. I'll lose the friendship. I'll look bad. This is going to go really, really badly. A fear that comes with the fact that there is shaming that comes toward us. And sometimes that sense of shame or anticipation of shame keeps us quiet, to which Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. In other words, I speak in any way. There's shaming coming toward me, but I speak in any way because it's the power of God for salvation. 
But the truth is, sometimes that fear holds us back. But you know what I find? There's another kind of fear that's actually, I believe, way more prevalent amongst Christians. It's not a fear of others. It's a fear of self. And so many Christians, when they ask, you know, what what kind of fear do you wrestle with when it comes to sharing your faith with others? It's the fear of messing it up. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to say it right. Like, I don't, I don't I'll, I'll confuse them. They'll ask me a question I won't have to answer. I just, or I'll, I'll make it complicated, and I don't feel very good at speaking. And just, and that fear, we become, we become really aware of our own inadequacies. And sometimes that just sort of keeps us back, and we'll just sort of stay quiet when it's time to speak up. Busyness, apathy, prayerlessness, fear, Number five, I wrote down unpreparedness. Unprepared, meaning I'm just not preparing myself for the opportunities that God's going to put before me today. I'm just, I'm just not anticipating that God is going to put before me people to share the gospel with. I'm just, just not prepared to answer that call. You say, well, how do you, how do you prepare, Ross? Well, I think there's lots of things you could say. I think one way we prepare is by getting real clear about the good news itself. What is the good news? What is it you've come to know? To think about that, to reflect on that. What's, what, is, what has Jesus done for you? To get clear on that. We prepare, I think, by, by re- getting clear on the gospel. We also prepare by, by learning from others. And one of the ways that I prepare myself is by learning from others who are really good at sharing the gospel. There's people that God has put right here in our church that are really good and at sharing Jesus with others. You know what I do? I talk to them. I listen to them. I, I listen to the stories that they tell. I, I ask questions about, how did, that, how did you get into that conversation? What, what did you say when they said that? And I learn by, by, from my brothers and sisters. We learn from, by, we, we prepare by, by learning from others. I'd also say we learn, we prepare, sorry, by learning from experience. I'm just going to tell you straight up, Friday morning, like to me, just out of nowhere, I had a great opportunity to share Jesus. And you know what happened? I didn't know what to say. I, I didn't know what to say. You're like, Pastor Ross, you being serious. I, I didn't I know what to say. Maybe it's never happened to you. It happened to me on Friday morning. This person, they were just, were just all out there about what they believed, everything like that. And, and just, just in, the, in the moment, I'm like, I'm like Lord, I, I need some, this, is a, this is an opportunity. It's a moment to say something. And I, conversation over. Man. Now, here's the thing. I've come to a place in my life where this is what I do. I don't let it defeat me. I let it teach me. So I'm walking away from that conversation. You know what I'm thinking? What am I going to say next time? And within about 10 or 15 minutes, I came up with what I'm going to say next time. And I'm going to trust the Lord that there is going to be a next time. And you know what I find sometimes? There often is. So we learn from experience. Man, that didn't go good. Well, what would you do different? How would you answer that question? You say, well, I have no idea. Ask somebody. Somebody show up at church, say, somebody asked me, I had no idea what to say. We prepare by learning from experience. We also prepare by having a plan. Now, I know I've told you this many times, but I got a four-point sermon in my head. You say, where was it Friday? I don't know. I don't know what happened. It was just one of those days. But I got a little four-point sermon in my head. It's four words that when somebody asks me, you know, what is it that you believe? Or what's the difference between you, you believe and what I believe? Or what do you teach on down at the church? I got, I got ready for me what I'm going to say. So I can share the gospel with somebody in less than one minute. Okay, and, you, and you're, I'm going to give you my outline right now. Some of you know it already. Some of you heard it many times, but here it is. It's four-point outline. It's God, sin, Jesus, decision. 
God sin, Jesus' decision. You say, I don't like that outline. Come up with your own. That's my outline, okay? God sin, Jesus' decision. There is a God who made everything that there is, including you and me, and he made us to know him and to love him and to enjoy him forever. But there's a problem. And the problem is that we've not treated God like God. And the Bible calls that sin. And sin, that, that works itself out. That not treating God like God works itself out into all kinds of shameful things that I've done and said and not done. And sadly, the bad news is that, that sin separates me from God. Now, that would be a tragic end of the story, but wonderfully, God in his love sent Jesus into the world. That first Christmas, that's why we love Christmas so much. Jesus came into the world and he was born and he came into this world for the purpose of saving me from my sin. And that first Easter, he died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin so that when I trust in him, I can have my sins forgiven. But that's the thing, I I need to trust in him. It's not just sort of just automatic. You don't just get it because you're born into the family you're born into or you had the background you do. You get it because you choose, you make a decision to trust in Jesus. And that's what I've done. Now listen, that isn't beautiful. That's not poetry. There's no choir singing just as I am as I'm doing that. That's just, that's just my four-point sermon. I don't say it precisely the same way every time. It's not a script I got memorized, but that's just how I roll. I got four points, so when that moment comes, I'm like, I know what to say. What are you going to say when somebody asks you, what, what is it you believe? Oh, I heard, heard something about this church. You got a new building. Is it, what, what goes on down there at your church? What are you guys all about anyway? He's like, nobody's going to ask me that. You watch. You watch, they may. What are you going to say when they do? You get a little four-point sermon, you make yours a three-pointer. I don't care, but have a plan. Have a plan, but what am I going to say when that moment is there and somebody asks me about what I'm all about and why do I get up in the morning and what's my purpose in life and what fires you up? There you go. Unpreparedness. Being prepared, I think, is key. Understand this, loved ones, is that we are his witnesses. That's who we are, we're called to be, and that's what we're called to do. Notice that repeated word, you. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We're tempted to think that it's going to be somebody else. It's always somebody else. Somebody else is better fit for it. We're tempted to think, you know, it's, it's, there's other people that are more articulate than me, more intelligent than me, more brave or courageous. There's other people who are more experienced. You know, someone else will come along who's more in tune with the culture, more familiar with this generation, more knowledgeable of Scripture. They're the ones that are going to do the work of evangelists. They're the ones who are witnesses. But we see here in this text that that's not the case. Jesus doesn't have some special subset of Christians who are the ones that are called to be witnesses. If you've seen things of him with the eyes of your heart, you're a witness. You're called to it. You are not the person beside you, although they are too, but I'm talking to you called to be a witness for him. What does Jesus call us to do? We're called to be witnesses for him. But that leads to the second question. And that is the question of how. How? Because it's all fine and good to sit here in church and talk about sharing Jesus. But how do you go out into a world where, broadly speaking, this message is unwanted? Where the truth about the cross and the realities of the gospel meet up with hardened, resistant hearts. Sometimes we find ourselves in hostile situations where we're called to be witnesses. And we just wonder, I mean, is there any hope of success? Like, how, how does Jesus intend for us 
to do this? Well, the answer comes to us in the first part of verse 8. Did you notice what Jesus says about the how? Verse 8, Acts 1. But you will receive what? What's the next word there? You will receive what? Power. Now that's what I need. I need, I need power because I ain't got much. But you will receive power. Well, where do I get this power from? Sounds like, like an energy drink, motivational speech. Look in the mirror and say, you got this, Jesus boy. Is that, how it, that the power? That'll last for five seconds. But you will receive power when, notice, the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now, Jesus here is pointing forward to the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. And from that day forward, as we understand in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit, everyone who believes on Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells every follower of Jesus Christ. Dear brother or sister, he's the source of the power. He's the power source. He's the how. It's the Holy Spirit. It's God himself. That's the how. How do we do this? In fact, that word power there, I love this word power. It's, because see the word power in verse eight? The Greek word for power is where we get our English word for dynamite. You know what dynamite is, right? Big, powerful, explosive. Like if dynamite went off somewhere nearby, we'd know about it. Like it would bust things apart, blow things over, it'd probably shatter windows. We'd feel the, the, the percussion of it. It does things. It moves. There's, there's some force there. And that's the word there. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The Holy Spirit empowers us for the mission. It's a kind of power we cannot conjure on our own, but it's a kind of power that God supplies himself in the ministry. Have a look at a couple of verses here. There's actually three verses I want to show you. The first one's from John 15, verses 26 and 27. I'm just going to go over here to my handy dandy screen. I love this. I feel like Vanna White over here, just can't turn letters. John 15, 26, 27. But when the helper comes, who's the helper? The Holy Spirit. That's right, right there, right? But when the helper comes, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will, notice, he will bear witness about me. Now, I love this verse. You know why I love this verse? Is because it teaches me that the first witness, the primary witness for Jesus, is the Holy Spirit. We are witnesses, but we are tools in the hands of the Spirit. We are the mouthpiece. The Spirit is the main witness, and the main one who testifies. Isn't that encouraging? Like, isn't that freeing in some ways? It's just like, it's, it's not even me. It's the Lord. He is, is God himself. It's the Spirit of God. Or how about this next verse, also from John? John chapter 16, verse 14 says this. He, talking about the Holy Spirit, he will notice, glorify me, Jesus speaking, he says, the Spirit will glorify me, for he will take what is mine, spelling mistake, mine, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. I love that. So what is, the, what is, a, what is one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit of God? One of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is he glorifies Jesus. He makes much of Jesus. You hear the name of Jesus every day, all day, lots of you, don't you? And it's not in worship. People using his way and his name in demeaning ways, just as a and as an expletive, and it grieves the heart of the followers of Jesus. We hear his name all the time in the world. In the world, the name of Jesus means very little. The person of Jesus is diminished. But what does the Spirit of God do? What is the Holy Spirit doing in this world, in and through His church? He's making much of Jesus. 
He takes what the world dismisses and diminishes and treats as common and glorifies him, showing him for who he is. And what happened to you when you came to trust in Jesus is you went from thinking that Jesus is not so much to seeing with the eyes of your heart that Jesus is everything. How did that happen? This is right here what happened. The Holy Spirit declared Christ to you in a powerful way, in a way you didn't see with your eyes, but it happened. That's what he does. Or how about John 16 and verse 8? John 16 and verse 8. Look what the Spirit does in people who would become believers. And when he comes, talk about the Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. I love this verse because Jesus is teaching about the work of the Spirit so that I don't have to convince anybody. It's not my job to convict anyone. The convincing, the convicting, the persuading is all the work of the Holy Spirit. See, you don't have to be the sharpest knife in the drawer, whatever that means to you. You don't have to be the most intellectual person. You don't have to be some philosopher or a great apologist. As useful as those things can be, at the end of the day, nobody gets saved because the person sharing the gospel is smarter than anybody else. The person gets saved because it's a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit of God who brings power to the occasion to bring the dead to life. He convicts of sin to show people, I got a problem of righteousness, that God requires something of me that I don't have, and of judgment to come. This is serious. It's the Spirit that does that. So we don't have to conjure anything. We don't have to manufacture anything. We can be faithful and trust, count on the Spirit to work, because that's how people get saved. And that's how, that's how we share the gospel. I love when you look at verse 4 and 5, just before this, just have a look there at Acts 1. While they were staying with him, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but for the wait for the promise, sorry, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Who's the promise of the Father? It's the Spirit. For he said, you heard from me, for, for John, sorry, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So what were they to do? You're to go to Jerusalem and you're to wait. Wait for what? The Holy Spirit. Can we, can we like organize? Can we like get a little training session going on? Can we like maybe start working on, on our literature? Can we get our social media set up and everything like that? No! Go and wait for the Spirit. Because ain't anything going to happen without the Spirit of God. How does he want us to do this? He wants us to do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Nobody gets saved without the Spirit's work. If your life is changed with any, in any eternal sense, it's because of the Holy Spirit of God. That means for us, for you and me, we've got to count on the Spirit. We've got to depend on the Holy Spirit for effectiveness. So what, is, what do we do? Well, we pray in the Spirit, praying that God would work by his spirit in the lives of people around us. We proclaim Christ. We proclaim Jesus. We share the good news with boldness. Not in rudeness, but with boldness, with a sense of conviction, because we are convinced that it's true. And we proclaim Christ. We stick to the main message, because that's who the spirit glorifies, is Jesus. And so 
That's how we count on the Spirit, by proclaiming Christ. And we do this by cooperating with the Spirit in our lives. See, when we sin, when we walk in unholiness, we quench the Spirit. But we don't want to quench the Spirit. We don't want to grieve the Spirit. We want to be used of the Spirit. So we live set apart unto the Lord. I think, to me, I think just a really painfully practical way, a practical means of counting on the Spirit is using what one of my mentors taught me. He, call, he calls it faith flags. Faith flags. You know what a flag is, right? You fly it and it says something about who you are, what you're about. You raise that flag. Well, a faith flag is when you, in your life, you raise your flag for Jesus for others to see. And what I mean by that is simply this. You take the filter out of your mouth where you might otherwise not mention the fact you're at church on Sunday or that you pray, and you include that in your daily conversation, your daily course of life, and you do it on purpose to watch and see where the Spirit of God is at work in people around you. My guess is, is that God is at work in, in people in your life that you may not even be aware of it yet, but you will become aware in time as you raise a faith flag. You say, okay, what, what does this look like? Here's an example. Here's an example. So suppose maybe you're out for a walk with a friend, and that friend says to you, man, you know, I just reading the news, it's hard to believe the war is still ravaging over there with Ukraine and Russia. It's hard, it's hard to believe. It's so heartbreaking. All the bloodshed. Maybe they're sharing that with you. And you can say with them, if you do this with integrity, you can say, yeah, you know what? I totally agree. It's so heartbreaking. In fact, I was praying about that this morning. Now, that person may just ignore that. They may skip right past it. They may change subjects. But they might, they might say to you, do you pray? Or do, do you pray? Do you? What, what, is, what is that? Or maybe they would just, it would trigger for them a recognition that there's something about you. You've got, you pray. Or maybe you'd say something like in another circumstance, you'd be like, you know, something, I was at church on Sunday. My pastor did the stupidest thing. I mean, here's what he, and you start a conversation like, oh, you, you go to church, do you? And you say, well, nobody's going to say that. You might be surprised. And other people will recognize that this is part of your life, is part of who you are, that Jesus is central as you take the filter out. And what you're doing is you're looking to see, you're looking for a response, you're looking for where is the Spirit of God at work in my life. Or maybe you would just say, just tell people what you'd tell people at church. At the end of a long day, at the end of a hard week, you'd say, I don't know what I'd do if I didn't have Jesus. And you watch and see. It's not a performance, you're being real. But you watch and see where is God at work. And somebody might say to you, What's this about Jesus in your life? Or maybe in time, they'll circle back to you and they'll say, you know, I know that you're a person of faith or belief. And all of a sudden, they'll be asking you to bear witness. And it's not because you're cool and trendy. It's because the Spirit of God is at work there. And you raise your faith flag looking to see where he's working. I think that's one practical way where we can... Count on the Spirit. How does Jesus want us to do this witnessing? He wants us to do it the only way we can, by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the Lord who does the saving, and that's how we'll carry out this mission. So what does he call us to do? He calls us to be witnesses. How are we to do it? By the power of the Holy Spirit. That's right, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's one more question and answer, and it's the, it's the where question. 
I think the where question is an important one because sometimes we find ourselves as witnesses for Jesus praying a quiet prayer. Here, Lord? Like, here? In this place where I work? On this team where I play? In this family? Here? And if you ever find yourself asking that question, you don't have to be too ashamed because there's good people who have asked that question too. I think of like the prophet Jonah. Ever heard of Jonah? God gave him an assignment and he wasn't cool with. In fact, he went the other way and ran the other way. Now, I would highly recommend that if you sense the Lord is leading you to witness, learn from Jonah. Better to just step out and take it from the Ninevites than to take it from the Lord. But I digress. The reality is, is that you may find yourself in a situation where you're wondering, does the Lord really want me to witness here? Maybe, just maybe we'll have an out. Like maybe you don't have to witness where you work. Maybe you don't, okay? Maybe, let's just see. Let's look in the text. Maybe we can find out. Maybe you don't have to share Jesus with people you're related to, okay? We'll just, just see here. Let me look at the text. You look with me, and maybe we got an out, all right? So he says, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. I don't live there. Awesome. Well, let's, just, let's have a prayer meeting for the Christians over that part of the world. And we'll just crack a bag of cheesies and wait and see what happens. Oh, wait a minute. There's more in the verse. Does, your, does anybody else's Bible verse just end there? Or do you have more words? Oh, dear. I was afraid of that. In all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Well, that's everywhere. Our worst fears confirmed. Called to be a witness. Even in the places where witnessing is hard. Where does he want me to do this? Well, the Lord calls us to be witnesses wherever we are and wherever we go. Notice he says, in Jerusalem, he starts there, and then in all Judea and Samaria, and then to the end of the earth. It's really interesting. Some have pointed out that what you have here in this phrase is kind of a table of contents for the whole book of Acts. Because in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, we're told about the Holy Spirit's working in those days in Jerusalem. And then in chapters 8 through 12, the disciples are scattered. And with them in their scattering to Judea and Samaria goes the gospel. And then in chapters 13 through 28, we read about missionary journeys and the gospel going to new and different places. And we get to the end of Acts and we find that the gospel is there in Rome already. And it's continuing on. You know, there's a mission, uh, a church planning network called Acts 29. And I, I, love, their, I love the name of that, that network because, well, Acts only has 28 chapters. But in calling yourself Acts 29, what are they saying? They're saying the work isn't done yet. In fact, the work still continues. I love the Great Commission Collective, though. I think that's really cool, too. But Acts 29 is a great name as well. It, speaks, it, it really speaks to us about our mission, about our mandate. Where does Jesus walk? want us to be witnesses? Well, his message is not limited by national boundaries or linguistic boundaries or ethnic boundaries, or racial boundaries. Those gospels to go everywhere. Start where, we're, start where you are. I don't want to over-spiritualize it, but let me ask you this. Where is your Jerusalem? 
Like, think about where you are right now, where you live, where you work, where you play. That's where our witnessing starts. It's right there. For some, it might even be right in our own household. Now, I will say this pastorally to you. When it comes to witnessing in your own household, you want to be sure you are depending on the Spirit and following the lead of the Spirit. Sometimes we get feeling guilty after a sermon like this, and we go home determined to share in order to assuage my own guilt about having not shared. No, no, but that's, that's not the right approach. Being a witness means I'm going to count on the Spirit. I'm going to pray in the Spirit. I'm going to trust Him. I'm going to look for opportunities. Sometimes we can close off opportunities by going about it in the flesh and not being led by the Spirit. But I am called to be a witness there. And you can be sure there will be times, and I find it's often not convenient times, where we're called to give, to give testimony, to bear witness about Jesus in my neighborhood, in my city, in my region. That's why as a church, our heart is toward church planning. Because planning churches is a great means of witnessing for Jesus and advancing the gospel. Be a witness wherever you are. Where are you right now? The Lord calls you to witness. Wherever you go. I think of, when I read those words, Judea and Samaria, in my mind, I think, okay, Jerusalem, I think locally, right where I am. Judea and Samaria, again, I don't want to over-spiritualize it, but I think nationally, I think across the country. And honestly, just being truthful, when I think about our country, there's two places in particular that I think of often, and you could say maybe I'm most concerned about where the gospel needs to go. One is amongst our First Nations communities in this country. And let's just be honest. There has been a history in this country that has made the advance of the gospel even more difficult. There have been unspeakable, horrific things done in the name of Jesus that are realities that we have to contend with. But there are peoples in this country who need Jesus, need to know the real Jesus. And in coming to know him, we'll find all surpassing joy in him. I think of First Nations communities. I also think of Quebec. I've told you this before. To me, I think that the province of Quebec, spiritually speaking, is a wasteland. That's why I'm so excited about a GCC church being planted in Montreal. And God is at work in many different ways in that province, but the need is so immense. And again, there's a history there too, where humanly speaking, it seems to make the advance of the gospel almost impossible, but nothing is impossible for God. So that's what I think of when I think of Judea and Samaria. But then we come to that last phrase, the end of verse 8. Do you see that again? To the end of the earth. To the end of the earth is literally... It literally could be rendered, rendered to the extremity, to the last extreme, to the, the farthest reaches. It reminds me of other passages where Jesus talks about the advance of the gospel throughout the world. Like Matthew 28 and 19. Just look at it on the screen here. Matthew 28, 19. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now that word nations could be rendered peoples. Because what he means by there is nations, he doesn't mean countries. He means, not, like, not political boundaries, but peoples, as in people groups. People groups. So, I mean, just take, for example, a country like, just say, like, Nigeria. 
Nigeria is one country, one nation, with 538 people groups in that one nation. Or what about Canada? We have all kinds of people groups, ethno-linguistic people groups here in one country. And when Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, he's talking about all people groups, all groups of people, every pocket of people out there that disciples will be made there. How about a verse we read a few minutes ago, Luke, uh, Luke chapter 24. In verse 47, he says, Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. Same word, same concept, peoples, people groups. We'll say more about this in our missions weekend coming up. First Sunday in November is our missions weekend. We'll, we'll, we'll revisit this and unpack this a little more. But the notion here is that we've got Jesus calling us to take the gospel to the extremity, to the ends of the earth, to every people group. How about Matthew 24 and 14? It says this, it says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, again, all peoples. And then the end will come. Not an interesting phrase. How about Revelation 5 verse 9? Here's, here's a glorious picture. Look at the worship around the throne. Worthy are you, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God. Notice, from every tribe and language and people and nation. All the peoples of the world, every ethno-linguistic group of people out there, God has a global plan. Right now in this world, there are 17,468 people groups, according to missiologists. 17,468 people groups in the world. 42% of those people groups are called unreached. Unreached means that there's not enough believers amongst those peoples to grow a church or to propagate the gospel. In other words, 42% of the people groups right now today in the world are people who have likely never even met a Christian, let alone heard the gospel. So over 7,000 people groups in the globe, in this planet right now, who know nothing about Jesus, who know nothing about the cross, who know nothing of the resurrection, who know nothing of the salvation that we enjoy today. Here's where I'm going with this. When unafraid witness is a pillar, and when we're serious about it, then we cannot be okay. We cannot be okay with 42% of the people groups in the world who've never even heard about Jesus. And to us, it cannot be a small thing to us that Jesus is not exalted yet in every place. If unafraid witness really is a pillar for us, then we must be a people who long for and increasingly long for Christ to be magnified in all the world, and the lost to be found. What does Jesus want us to do? To be his witnesses. How? By the power of the Holy Spirit. Where? Wherever you are, wherever you go, and wherever Christ is not known. Now before I close, I just wrote down four things briefly that I want to share with you just as a means of saying, so what do I do now? So we've contemplated this, we've seen this, we've heard this. Now, where do I put my foot next? Four things. All alliterated with the letter P. Pray, prepare, pursue, praise. Pray, prepare, pursue, 
praise. Number one, pray. Pray to God for a heart for lost people. Pray that God would continue to cultivate in you a concern, a genuine godly care for people who don't yet, don't yet know Christ or who are in places where Christ is not yet known. I mentioned earlier about their Holy Spirit hit list. I'd love for every single person in our church to every week, if not every day, be praying for at least one lost person. Every one of us should be praying at least for somebody who's lost. You know why? Because you all know at least somebody who doesn't know Jesus. And you can pray for them. Did you ever think of this? You praying for them. You might be the only person in the world who is praying for them. You might even be the only person who's ever prayed for them specifically. Pray for them. See what God would do as you pray for that person. Get them on your hit list for Jesus. Pray. Number two, prepare. Prepare yourself to be a witness. We talked earlier about being prepared. Think about what would I say if I'm given an opportunity just to share simply what I believe. I believe every one of us would do well if we are able to share the good news about Jesus in one minute or less. But you got to work at that. you got to think about that. Prepare yourself. Prepare your heart. Planning. Even practicing. Now this is where it gets a little weird, okay? But I, just for free, I'm just trying to help you out. Just trying to be a good pastor. But i got a little weird assignment for you. I would encourage you to practice with another believer. You say, practice what? Not your golf shot, but practice sharing your faith with another believer. Say, you know what? I want to be able to share Jesus just briefly but clearly. Can I practice on you? And I mean, as a believer, wouldn't you just love to serve your brother or sister like that? In fact, in fact, it would be a great thing. Small group leaders, you got my full permission. If you want to just scrap one of the questions and throw this into the mix this week about practicing, you go for it, right? Let's, let's, let's do that. Let's maybe pair off or I don't know what you want. I don't know. You, you figure it out. But, but practice. What, what am I going to say? Remember my question earlier, right? I thought, what am I going to say next time? Prepare yourself for that next time when it comes. Pray, prepare. Don't just be a blank slate, though. As getting prepared is you are anticipating that God is going to use you, that he's at work in and through you and around you, and by faith, you're preparing for that opportunity that could come today to be used of God. Pray, prepare. Third, pursue. Pursue the joy of being used by God and testifying for Jesus. It's not always a pleasant experience, but it's among the greatest experiences you'll ever have. Of being used of God to speak the most important truths that there are to speak. I was, uh, I've told you before about a man that I led to the Lord a number of years ago at our kitchen table. He gave his life to the Lord. And uh, there's no, no great praise for me. If I'm honest, I probably was almost as surprised as anybody that it happened that day, but it did. God was at work. And he gave his life to the Lord. A few weeks ago, we were away and I was visiting a church where we used to be involved. And he was there with his wife, too, which is amazing because his wife wasn't interested in Jesus in those days. And there they both were at church. And he comes up to me and he says, he says I just, I just got to thank you. I got to thank you. It's because of you that I'm here. Now, he saw, probably saw the look on my face. And he's like, I, it was God. It was God. I'm like, yeah. 
It was God. I said the same thing I say to you all the time. I can't even fix myself, let alone anybody else. It was God. But I'll tell you this. There are few greater joys in life than being used of God to lead and to invite somebody else to come to know Jesus. The biggest bear hug I've ever received in my life was from another man. I had the privilege of leading him to know Jesus. And I can, I can still feel it. Like, it was crushing. I, I couldn't breathe. He grabbed me and hugged me tight. I could feel his scruff scraping on my face, squeezing me. Thank you so much. It wasn't me. But it's a great joy to sit in the front row and to say some stuff and to watch God work. It was the greatest experience of suffocation I've ever had. There's much joy in that. Isn't that a joy that you would love to see more of in your life? Me too. Pray, prepare, pursue, praise. I think that one of the ways we keep our hearts fresh with the wonder of God's saving grace is when we praise him and we worship him. The greater our joy in Jesus, the greater the inclination we will have to share him with others, to invite them to join in the joy with us. Actually, that's how we want to close the service today. Pastor Alec and I were talking earlier this week, and we decided today we want to do something a little different as we close. We're going to sing together a part of a song that we've already sung this morning, and I'm going to lead it. And we're just going to sing. No instruments, just you, me, and our voices, praising the Lord. We're going to sing a song that we sang today. It's a hymn. It's written by a man named William Cooper, who is good friends with John Newton. John Newton's the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. And Cooper and Newton were good friends. But Cooper suffered immensely with depression. But in his life, through his sorrows and his tears and his own inadequacies, he was a prolific hymn writer. And one of the hymns he wrote was the song we sang this morning, There is a Fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Now, if you're new to church and you're just learning about Jesus, I admit, that sounds super weird. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins? What is this, Halloween? What are you talking about? I understand the question. What we mean, it's a poetic way of speaking of the cross of Jesus and what he accomplished for us there. We talk about Jesus shedding his blood for us. We mean he died And there's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. It's talking about Christ's accomplishment on the cross for repentant sinners. It says, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. So our sins are forgiven. And we stand righteous before the Lord.